We've been talking about the just society for quite some time. What it means. Of course, the just society is what God has been working to achieve ever since the fall. When man first sinned and began to live unjustly. The just society is what he was seeking when he introduced himself to Avram and his wife. The just society is what he began to form with the children of Yaakov. The just society is precisely what God intended when He gave His law to Moses and the people of Israel. After Israel, due to their sins, fell away from God and were judged and the nation destroyed, the just society grew up around the synagogue. And then with the coming of Mashiach and those who knew Him, and became part of the congregations developed by His disciples, the just society has passed to us also. When you live in a world that's full of injustice, I mean real injustice, not what's sometimes called injustice, though it really isn't. In a world that's full of real injustices, though, and where are you going to find the just society except in the house of God? So we should be endeavoring with everything that we do to create the just society here. One of the primary signs of the just society is love, the love of God. And we know from the Shema and also from Yeshua's words, that when we speak about the love of God, what we're talking about is, is love going two ways. One way is towards God, love the Lord your God. But the other way is towards our fellow man. You know, Yeshua had many words for the Pharisees who were very good at keeping every little piece of the law, except they sometimes weren't so good at keeping the weightier matters of the law, which are those matters that require us to love one another and serve one another. You see, here on this earth, this is how we truly show God's love. We truly show God's love in what we do for one another. One of the things that I've been very pleased with in, in this congregation is the amount of work that you guys do on behalf of one another. And I know it's a lot. That same day that people were helping Olga to move, the, the, many of the same group were also over at Johnny Smith's house, house helping him 
with something that he needed assistance with. This is really quite wonderful because it demonstrates to me that we're moving in the direction of truly understanding what the great love of God is and what it means to walk in His ways and what it means to truly be the people of, well, a just society. And so we're going to talk about the just society and godly love today. Um, we live in a nation now where uh, love has really been debased as a word. Um, English is a very utilitarian language anyways. And, um, you know, one of the problems with a utilitarian language is you don't have all of the aspects of language you need to always express well uh, the meaning of some really important words. So we have one word in the English for love, love, L-O-V-E, and uh, we can speak of love, uh, loving our hamburger in the same sense that we love our wives, it would seem like. Hmm. Kind of problematic. We call things love that aren't love, they're sheer perversion. We call all kinds of sinful activities love. And so it would seem like love is a, rather an anarchist thought in the United States these days. So therefore, love as we speak about it generally in our English language has almost become inappropriate when we talk about the just society. So we're going to talk about what God's love is like and, and uh, the real definition of love that we get from the Bible. Um, as usual, I'm going to cover a lot of scriptures because I believe if we really want to know what God has to say, we learn what God has to say from this, right? This is our textbook. This is where we find our authority. We don't find our authority from the Pope. We don't find our authority from the rabbis. We find our authority from the Word of God. This is where God gives us our instruction. That is the, after all, the basic meaning of Torah, instruction. And so we want to go with all of the Torah of God, all of the instruction of God. And so if we want to go with all of the Torah of God, then we go with this. This is where we find what God would speak to us and what He's going to train us in that we would learn how to walk in His ways. And by the way, when we talk about the just society and godly love, I don't think there's any better place to start than Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which uh, you realize is the Shema. And we read here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today are to be on your heart. You are to teach them diligently to your children and speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Bind them as a sign 
On your hand, they are to be as frontlets between your eyes and write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. Love Adonai, your God. Hmm. So if we're going to use the word love in such a broad sense, what are we really talking about when we say love the Lord your God? How can we best express that? I think one of the ways we do it is by realizing that there's many aspects to love. One of those aspects, if you truly love someone, then you're going to owe a certain amount of allegiance to them. If one truly loves his wife, he's going to be loyal to her and faithful to her. He's not going to transgress the proper behavior of a man towards a woman. He's certainly not going to lead her into sin, and he's not going to walk into sin with her. Because to do otherwise is to make a mockery of the word love. That's not loving. Love doesn't do evil, one might say. So when we talk about loving God, we mean that we owe Him all allegiance. We mean that we, we intend to walk in loyalty and faithfulness to Him each and every day. We mean that we intend to obey His Word and to do the things that are going to make Him glad. You see, our God is not just a faraway being that set the world in motion one day and then kind of left us alone. Rather different than that. He's very personal. He's with us each and every day. We walk with Him. He walks with us. He instructs us. He speaks with us. If we've got ears to hear, that is. In Deuteronomy 36, we read this. Also, Adonai, your God, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. The idea of circumcision of the heart didn't begin with Paul. The idea of circumcision of the heart began with God a long, long time before his servant Paul came to be. He wants our hearts to be circumcised that the evil could be cut away, that evil thoughts could be cut away, that the desires that are of this world and not of God could be done away with so that we could truly walk with Him. This is love for God. You see, Deuteronomy 33, 2-4, Adonai came from Sinai and dawned on B'nai Israel from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the holy myriads, blazing fire for them from his right hand. Indeed, a lover of peoples is he. All his kedeshim are in his hand. They followed in your steps, each receiving your words. Torah, Moses commanded us. 
a heritage for the community of Yaakov. It's very interesting. He's a lover of peoples. And then Scripture immediately follows, telling us that his Kedeshim are with him. God is looking for those who are obedient of heart. You see, it's those who are obedient of heart who truly understand what it means to love God. It's easy for us to speak the words, right? I love God. That's easy. That's easy. Words are cheap, right? What matters is the actions. If all we have is words coming from our mouths, then I question whether we know what love means, first of all, and I certainly question whether or not we love God. Love of God begins with obedience to God. Love of God begins doing the things that God told us to do. And if we're not willing to do those things, especially the things that are really cut and dried, easy to see, easy to define, then what does that say about us? It certainly doesn't speak about us having any great love for God, whatever our, the words of our mouth may be. Ah, Jeremiah 33, 11. Speaking about the time when the new covenant has really become the covenant that all people on earth understand and know. And he says, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of them who say, give thanks to Adonai, Savaot, for Adonai is good, for his love endures forever. You see, we speak about loving God, but where does love start from? Love really comes from God, doesn't it? That's where it starts. Don't start in our hearts. Don't start here on this earth. It starts with God. And those of us who are going to follow Him, what we're really doing when we truly come into love, His love, what we're really saying is that He has become our God. Olga spoke about disciples. She's right to do so. It's a great word. After all, Yeshua did not call us to go make believers. Now, becoming a believer, becoming born again, yeah, today's my 40th birthday. You know, it used to really crack up my friends in the former Soviet Union that I was born again on May 1st. The great socialist holiday. Socialist Workers' Day? Wow. Workers unite! Yeah. Oh, it used to crack them up to no end. My interpreter came to me one day, my first interpreter there, and said, is it really possible that anybody can be born again on the great atheist holiday? Yeah, it is. But making disciples... We're not to make mere believers. Scripture tells us that the demons believe and they tremble. 
The demons believe. They believe. So it's not mere believers that we want to make. We want to make disciples. And what is a disciple? A disciple is one who is truly going to follow the master, who is going to do everything within their being and everything within what the Holy Spirit gives them to become just like the one that they are a disciple of. They want to speak like the one that they are a disciple of. They want to have the same sense of the world around them. Just like the one they are a disciple of. They want to actually do and behave and act in exactly the same way that the one they are a disciple of does. You see, that, that's what it means to be a disciple. It's not to be someone who merely by word of mouth says, well, yeah, I, I believe in Yeshua. It's got to be more than that. Once again, words are cheap, right? It's actions that matter. And if you're truly going to be a disciple of Yeshua, then you're going to love him and you're going to love the people that he sends you to. Because Yeshua gave his own commandments, didn't he? Continuing on, though, in our study of love through the Scriptures, let's go to Hosea 3.1. Then Adonai said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a companion in committing adultery, just as Adonai has loved the Bnei Israel while they were turning to other gods and loving raisin cakes. You know, when someone betrays us, it's very hard for us to love them. And yet God tells us to love even under those conditions. When someone has betrayed us, that, that can be very difficult. Now, I'll tell you what, it doesn't mean that the betrayal shouldn't cost them something. It sure should. It certainly cost Hosea's wife something. Something in years of misery, something in absolute humiliation before the society. Just like because of his sin, it cost David something. David, even after he had repented, The penalty for his sin remained in the family, didn't it? The sword never left his family again. He had one of his sons who raped one of his daughters. The full brother of that daughter then killed the son who raped his sister.
another son raised a rebellion against David. Almost overthrew his father. If it hadn't been for God, he would have. That son also perished. Oh, the cost of sin. It's a terrible cost. And yet we're called to love even those who are in sin, even those who have betrayed us. Indeed, there is a cost to sin. And although Hosea is being told to go and love this woman just as Adonai loved B'nai Israel, in Hosea 9, 1 through 3, we read, Do not rejoice, O Israel. Do not celebrate like the peoples, for so you have gone, well, behaving in a very bad way and have gone away from your God. You have loved the prostitutes pay on every grain threshing floor. Threshing floor and wine press will not sustain them and you wine will fail her. They will not dwell in Adonai's land. Instead, Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. Wow. The cost of sin. And what's the antidote? Well, it's the price that Yeshua paid for us, to be sure. But it sure is a lot better for us if we never get caught up in it to start with, isn't it? Micah 6.8, He has told you, humanity, what is good and just and what Adonai is seeking from you, only to practice justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 11.7, For Adonai is righteous, he loves justice. The upright will see his face. Indeed, he's calling us to form a just society. In the former Soviet Union, where I worked for four years, the people of God suffered greatly there. They would have their families taken away from them if they were believing parents, and the children would be forced into homes where the atheistic parents would properly instruct the children in the ways of the Soviet state. Or maybe the parents would just be arrested and go into the deep gloom of the gulag from whence they would never be heard from again. It was a society where there was no due process. If the state said you were guilty, you were guilty. That's all there was to it. Make no mistake about it, they said they had rights. In the Soviet Constitution, supposedly they had rights to assembly and rights to worship freely. They had a right to free speech. They had a right to the free press and all this sort of good stuff. But don't kid yourself, they didn't. What the government gives, the government can take away. 
And the Soviet government did far more taking away than they did giving. When we first got there, you could not go up to someone on the street and speak to them and expect them to look at you. No, instead, when they were walking down the street, they would have their heads about like this. They'd walk straight ahead. They wouldn't look to right or left, up. It was always focused downwards. Why? Because on every corner, there was a block captain who was reporting on every person they saw. Terrible. It was an unjust society is the point that I'm giving you. An unjust society. Justice did not reign in any sense of the word there. And so if they were going to find justice, the only place where there was a just society or something that at least sort of mimicked a just society was in fact the house of God. Other than the house of God, there was no just society. You see, that was the one place where what resembles the love of God could be found. Very hard. Psalm 45.8 tells us, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Wow, here's another concept for us. We are to love righteousness. Now righteousness is fairly easy to define. What it means is to do the right thing. And we've already established that this is where we find our authority from. This is where we find the definition of the right thing. Well, if you're doing the wrong thing, or if you're doing something that is unholy, something that is sinful, something that is cruel to your fellow human being, something that is not treating your fellow human being with the dignity they should have, then guess what? You're not behaving justly and you're not behaving in a loving way and you're not behaving in a righteous way. So we're to love not only justice, not only mercy, but we're to love righteousness. And we're to hate wickedness. Yep, you'll learn pretty quick if someone really loves righteousness by what they do, how they live. You'll find out if they hate wickedness also. If they do wickedness, then they don't really hate it. Not sufficiently, anyways. Proverbs 12.1, Whoever loves knowledge loves correction, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. Well, that's certainly telling it like it is. Tell us what you really think. You see, people do sin. There are many ways that we can be tempted. and We don't always withstand those temptations well. 
So my question at that point is, is the person someone who seeks correction and seeks reproof when they've done wrong and who is willing to admit their wrongdoing? If they're not, then obviously they don't hate sin and they don't love righteousness, you see. Proverbs 15, 9 tells us that Adonai detests the way of the wicked, but loves those who pursue righteousness. So, we've covered the subject of love, I think, fairly sufficiently from Torah and the broader Tanakh. How, do we, how, how about if we move on? to the Brit Hadashah. See what, see what that says. In John 14, 21, Yeshua is speaking and instructing his disciples. This is right after he had introduced communion, right after the Last Supper, right after Yeshua has already sent Judas on his way, and Judas went and sold him out. Even as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that Mashiach would be sold out. And Yeshua says in verse 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal myself to him. So, how do you demonstrate that you love Yeshua? The same way you demonstrate that you love God. You know His commandments and you keep them. Otherwise, your love is found to be faulty. Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Messiah died for the ungodly. Wow. You see, God didn't love us just because we were His friends. He loved us even when we were yet His enemies, living in sin and rebellion against Him, acting as a foot soldier for the kingdom of the enemy of our souls, and yet God loved us so much that even at that time, He gave everything for us. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that when God is speaking with Moshe in the early chapters of the book of Exodus, He tells Moses that I'm not doing these things for you or for the people of Israel. I'm doing them because of my love for the patriarchs, because the patriarchs had demonstrated faith. And as Paul well said, that faith was accounted to them as righteousness. I mean, what does it really mean to love God if we don't even have enough faith in Him to follow what He has given us do. Oh, sure, we might try to do religious things and religious 
actions all day long. But if it's just based on something that's wrote, not based on real love for God, then what does it really mean? Romans 12.10 Coming back to the subject of how we treat one another. Be tenderly devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo one another in giving honor. It's interesting, there were four words for love in the ancient Greek. One of them was eros. It spoke about a largely sensual love. Another one was storge, a word that wasn't used all that often. It really just meant affection. It might not have even been very warm affection. Another one was phileo. It's the type of love that you might find in a family or between very close friends. It's a love that would mean that you'd be willing to do things for that person that you wouldn't do for anybody else. But finally, there's agape. And agape was the word that was chosen um, certainly by the disciples in their epistles to speak of the love of God. It was also the word that the writers of the Septuagint chose to speak of God's love. It means an unconditional love. We read in John 15, 13, that greater love has no man than this, than that he lay his life down for his friends. You see, we learned from Romans 5, 8, just a few minutes ago that Yeshua loved us, that God loves us even more than that. Because even when we weren't God's friend, Yeshua laid his life down for us. Now that's love, folks. And it's the same kind of love we're called to have for those in our world who are lost and stumbling and walking in darkness and don't know where to go forth and where to make disciples. That requires love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul is speaking to the people of the congregation in Ephesus, and he says, Therefore I, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul spent a good part of his ministry as a prisoner to the Romans in one place or another. Urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. What is that manner? He defines it with complete humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, <clears throat> making every effort to keep the unity of the Ruach of the Spirit in the bond of shalom, peace. Peace. 
This is what it would look like, not angry mobs on the street shouting hateful things at whoever they take to be their enemy of the day, but rather with complete humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love. 1 Peter 4.8 tells us, Above all, keep your love for one another constant, for love covers a multitude of sins. How many times have I seen in the congregations of our God that a little misunderstanding arises between two people over words that were spoken, and the second person who believes they have been wrong doesn't understand what the first person was saying anyways. And instead of going to that first person and asking, what did you mean? They just start spreading it everywhere that so-and-so has done this awful thing. And it creates dissension and division within the congregation. This too is sin, you realize. We spoke about how in the just society we handle our disagreements. And Yeshua gave us a wonderful and very short and easy to follow method for dealing with sins in the body. And it starts out with us simply going to the person who has wronged us, if it really be private between you and that person, and then hoping to work it out. That's where it starts. It doesn't start going around and spreading an evil tale amongst the people about another person, especially over something that we don't even well understand to start with. That's not love. It's certainly not obedience to God. And yet I see it all too often. 1 John 5, 1-3 Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves the one born of Him. We know that we love God's children by this. When we love God and obey His commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Hmm. Once again, love is not what we feel. There's a popular song many years ago, I think Don Francisco did it, in the, the chorus went, Love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. No, that's really true. Love isn't a feeling, it's an act of your will. Love is what you do. You know what I really want to know in a people when I first see them and address them? I'm not interested if they say they love each other. Like I say, words are cheap. You know what I really want to know is do they like each other? 
so much they like being together. I love my board of elders here. Wow. Listen, we, we certainly say we love each other, but we demonstrate that by showing that we actually like being together. We actually like speaking to one another and hearing from one another. You see, love is what you do. It's not what you feel. Now, does that mean that love doesn't ever arouse feelings? Well, sure it can. It should. But I'm just saying that's not the chief aspect of love. Revelation 2.4 The subject is the congregation at Ephesus. And the complaint that God has against this congregation, which for all we can see historically at the time that this was written, was a congregation that was very devoted to obeying God in written things. So everything that's written in the Bible, they would do their best to obey. However, he says, but I have this against you, that you have forsaken your first love. Did some study on this, and what I found was fascinating. That the congregation at Ephesus had at one time been one of the most passionate, red-hot congregations in the entire world. They really desired to please their Lord and their Savior. They were a missionary congregation that sent people out to others. Their desire was to follow the commandment of Yeshua in Matthew 28 at the end of of that chapter, uh, verses 18 through 20, to the smallest detail that they would go and make disciples. But somewhere along the way, that fire burned out. And they became a congregation who kept the rules. They wouldn't scribble outside of the lines, you understand. But they lost their love for people and their love to see the lost of this world come to salvation. And this is what they were being corrected for. Not that they had become a wicked congregation, but that they simply weren't demonstrating the great passionate love that they had at one time to go forth in faith for Yeshua and take the good news to all of the world. You see, the congregation at Ephesus had at one point been a remarkable congregation until religion to them became just a cold, hard list of rules. What happens to you when you sin? You just shrug your shoulders and say, well, God will forgive me. Or does it break your heart? 
Does it break your heart? Does it bring tears to your eyes? What about when you see a loved one wallowing in sin? What does that do to you? Does it cause you to clam up because you don't know what to say? Or in the compassion that God has given you for that person, does it give you the words to say that you need at that time? <clears throat> if you truly love a person, you're not going to let them walk into hell unchallenged. Do you hear that? If you truly love a person, you will not let them walk into hell without challenging the behavior that's taking them there. And make no mistake, just as heaven is a very real place, so also is hell a very real place. 3 John 1.11 Loved ones, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. You see, Scripture makes it very clear to us what love really is. You can't deny it. It's clear what love is. Godly love requires godly action. Godly behavior. So we imitate what's good, not what's evil. We don't imitate the things of this world. We imitate the things of God. Why? Well, one thing that drives me crazy is how the congregations of our God Rather than making the society around us more like the Bible, we instead are becoming more like the society around us. Part of it is because we don't know this well enough to even know what righteousness is. But another part of it is we don't love God sufficiently to do righteousness even when we do know what it is. So you say you love God? Prove it. <clears throat> I want to end with this, Matthew 5, 43 through Um, actually, I don't want to end there. Yeshua says in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same, don't they? Hmm. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Even the pagans do that, don't they? 
Therefore be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Being perfect obviously requires that we love the people that God has sent us to. After all, we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever should believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world. If God so loved the world and if we are the disciples of Yeshua, shouldn't we do the same? John 21, 15 through 17. And this is where I'll close. When they had finished breakfast, Yeshua said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It's great catch of fish. You remember Peter had been a fisherman, right? And Yeshua took him and said, I'll make you a fisher of men. And so he's asking this question, going back to the beginning. And of course, a lot happened during those years. Peter must have felt whiplash many times, I would dare say. At one point, Yeshua is telling him, gee, Peter, you really got it right. You could only have known this by the Spirit of God. Then at another time, he's saying to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter says, I'll follow you anywhere, even to your death. And Yeshua tells him, no. Before the rooster has crowed three times, uh, before the rooster has crowed whatever number of times, you'll deny me three times this night. And what did Peter do? He denied Yeshua those three times. Imagine the shame because I think Peter really felt shame. Peter was one of those who understood that sin is a very serious thing. And I think he felt the burden of his sins greatly. We read that he went out and wept bitterly after he heard the cock crow, don't we? He went out and he wept bitterly. Obviously, his sin took an emotional toll on him. And so Yeshua is speaking to him. And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter answers, yes, Lord. He said to him, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. At which point Yeshua spoke to him again, and he, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. He said to him, take care of my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him for a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Yeshua said to him, feed my sheep. Now some people have opined that what Yeshua was doing here was redeeming Peter for each of the three times that Peter had denied him. And perhaps he was. But I think there's something deeper that Yeshua was trying to get across. Human beings tend to be very fickle when it comes to love. It's like I say, we say we love one another, but we don't really demonstrate it in our actions, at least not often enough. And he uses this this phraseology, which is, is very interesting as well. So he tells him the second time to take care of my sheep, but the third time, feed my sheep. You see, it's not enough for one who would be a leader in the house of God to merely teach. They've got to care for the people in the congregation as well. And I've oftentimes said that if I had my way here, I would be a pastor of a congregation full of ministers. Everyone a minister. Everyone in this congregation should have a ministry. Now your ministry might not be being a pastor. Might not mean being an evangelist. It might not mean being a teacher. Maybe your ministry is to have a prayer group that you very faithfully lead week and week and week and week. And you pray for everyone in the congregation and all the, the major things that affect us. That's a ministry. It's an important ministry. Maybe your ministry is something that deals with taking care of the poor. After all, how do we find Torah defining love? We're to love the widow and the orphan, the poor and the stranger in our midst. Isn't that what Scripture tells us? Indeed. You see, that kind of love, it requires that we go out of our way to serve everyone that God gives us responsibility for, but especially those of the household of faith. And if you want to see a congregation that is really on its way to learning what it means to love God, then watch one thing from them. How do they serve one another? If they don't serve one another, then they're really not on their way to learning what it means to love God. So in the just society, God has told us to love God and to love one another. And we understand from his word that his love 
is not just the feeling, it's what we do. And so if you say you really love someone, I'll tell you, you know, to love someone, you don't even have to like them a whole lot. You do have to love them, and that love is shown by what you do. Not by what you say, but by what you do. So, Mishpacha, let's walk into what it means to live in the just society. Knowing what that means is we must love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might, and we must love one another. Amen? Amen.